Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law and policy. I'm Stephen Murens. In this first episode of 2022, we are discussing the law of self-defense in Canada. There were two major events in the fall of 2021 that prompted our discussion. The first, and the case which actually led us to have this episode, was the Supreme Court of Canada decision in R.V. Keel, a case which clarified the law around when someone can be acquitted of a crime if they are acting in self-defense. Specifically, the Supreme Court clarified how judges and juries are supposed to determine someone's role in an incident leading to a possible self-defense claim. The second event that occurred in the fall of 2021 was the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse in the United States. He was a 17-year-old at the time who of his offense, and he traveled from Illinois to Wisconsin uh, to attend a protest, although in a way he was a counter-protester who was there ostensibly to defend property, according to him, and possibly provide medical aid during Black Lives Matter protests in Wisconsin. And he wound up shotting, shooting three people and successfully argued that his actions were done in self-defense. Now, the Canadian immigration connection to what the law of self-defense is in Canada is that a person who has been convicted of or who has committed a crime abroad may be inadmissible to Canada. However, the Federal Court of Canada has ruled that immigration officials must accurately assess whether someone acted in self-defense if that defense may apply. And we give the case name and discuss that case in the episode. Our guest for this episode is Sarah Runyon. Sarah's previously appeared on Borderlines before. She was last on in episode 61 to provide an overview of the law of sexual assault in Canada and was also on in episode 38 to discuss the offense of breach of bail conditions. I can be reached at steven.meurrens at larlee.com, steven.murrens at larlee.com. Deanna Okanachoff can be reached at deanna at mccrea.ca, Deanna McRae. And Sarah Runian can be reached at info at marionandcompany.ca. M-A-R-I-O-N-A-N-D-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y dot C-A. Once again, if you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. When we booked this, it was uh, or scheduled this. It was because the Supreme Court had released their decision in RV Kill, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize after we had booked it that the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in the United States was going to take over the media for <laughs> about two weeks. And it actually serves as an interesting juxtaposition or like another mm-hmm. fact pattern, I guess you could call it. Yes, uh, it's a bit of a very law school-esque way of describing the shooting of three people to kind of like put that situation in the United States in the Canadian legal context, as well as the facts in RV Kill, which I actually thought the Kyle Rittenhouse case seemed more, at least at first glance, self-defense-y 
in Kill. Am I pronouncing it right? It is just K-H-I-L-L, Kill? I, I think that the council pronounced it Kill, but Kiel? Okay. the media seems pronouncing it as Kill, so. There's a couple ways to start. There would be going over the law itself, and then maybe both the Kyle Rittenhouse facts as well as Kiel. Or I think you mentioned the day that the Supreme Court decision came down or the day after you were arguing a self-defense case in court. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to maybe tell us about kind of that and then we'll get into the actual law and then maybe the situations that arose in Kiel and Rittenhouse? Yeah, so the day that Kiel came down, I was in the middle of an uh, aggravated assault trial where the um, accused was launching a Section 34 defense. And, you know, originally we stood down so that we could digest the decision in Kiel. And I think it's garnering so much attention because it's the first case from the SEC to sort of comment on those 2013 amendments. But um, I'm not sure that it so drastically changed the analytical framework um, as, as much as you know, it's getting media attention. I'm not sure that it's really marked these sort of stark contours in the law. Um, it, it really just interprets for the first time um, the three-pronged test under Section 34. Um, so, you know, in, in to put this into context in the trial I was engaged in, this individual had uh, stated that she reacted in the way that she did, and I'll be careful because we're not finished uh, sentencing yet, reacted in the way that she did because she believed that she was uh, going to be attacked. And consistent with the analysis in Keel, the uh, trial judge believed that she had opportunity to remove herself from that particular situation before it escalated to the point where she believed she had to take drastic measures. And that's sort of that, and that keys into this whole analysis surrounding, you know, role of the accused that Justice Martin talks about in Keel. Yeah. So let's go into then, you mentioned section 34, which is section 34 of the criminal code. I have it open in front of me. So maybe I'll just quickly read it and you can provide comment on sure kind of how the law might work or the jurisprudence might work beyond the statute. Yeah. So section 34 sub one of Canada's criminal code says a person is not guilty of an offense if A, they believe on reasonable grounds that force is being used against them or another person or that a threat of force is being made against them or another person. So that's kind of like the, the subjective opinion of the accused. Yeah, so... The, the, the first element takes into consideration the accused state of mind and the perception um, of events that led him or her to, um, to act. And that subjective belief must be held on reasonable grounds. And if the accused does not hold the belief that uh, the use or threat of force being used against them was not imminent, then the defense is not available. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's an entirely and the Supreme Court of Canada hasn't said that it's an entirely subjective test because there certainly is the perception of the accused measured against that that reasonableness standard. Reasonable standard, right. Yeah. Well they give the example that we you would look at whether the uh, someone in the accused situation would have reasonably thought that they were engaging in self-defense, but an example that of something that wouldn't be reasonable to step into is 
if someone's, you know, a racist yeah. and they believe, I think the example the Supreme Court gives is that, and I'm just quote the Supreme Court, all young black men are armed and dangerous. Right. You can't, it's not, you wouldn't, as the juror or the judge step in and go, well, he reasonably believed this. I don't so wish there to are take some it too areas far off track, but it sort of sounds almost like what happens in the refugee context, which is like whether you fear something, there also needs to be like some kind of an objective basis for making that component of the claim. It's not just strictly a subjective test; it's like a modified subjective test. It yes. Sounds- yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so back to section thirty-four B. The act that constitutes the offense is committed for the purpose of defending or protecting themselves or the other person from the use of that threat or force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so under that second prong, um, it, we're really examining the accused personal purpose and committing um, the act that constitutes the offense. So, you know, are was there any... Um, you know, malice behind your level of engagement, or was it truly uh, and genuinely for the purpose of uh, defending yourself? So it's, um, it is a subjective inquiry. um, And it it only, you can only have one motive, and that is self-defense. And then C, the act committed is reasonable in the circumstances. Right. And there are a long list of factors that we consider under the um, the last element. But ultimately, the question is whether the accused response to the use or threat of force was reasonable. And that's done by evaluating things like, uh, well, the, the factors are listed in the code. So the nature of the force or threat, the extent to which the use of force was uh, imminent, and whether there were other means available to you at the requisite time to respond. Um, the person, this is this is what was front and center in Keel, the person's role in the incident, uh, whether any party to the incident used or uh, threatened to use a weapon. We also look at things like, um, I think it's age, size, and gender, uh, the nature, duration, uh, and history of the relationship between the parties, uh, and and the list goes on. Um, and so what you're what you're really doing and examining that sort of third prong is asking. And I think Justice Martin also makes this comment specifically, who ultimately should bear the responsibility for the outcome of this altercation? Yeah, it was interesting reading, especially when juxtaposed with the Rittenhouse trial and the state of the law in Wisconsin, that there's no factor that's determinative. Yes. Unlike it seemed in Wisconsin, where everything focused on whether there was provocation, which seemed like at least in Wisconsin, that would be a bar towards self-defense. Right. In Canada, there's no determining factor. As you said, you look at everything and determine sort of who's at fault. That's right. Yeah. It's almost like a, a process of evaluating whether the response and the degree of the response was commensurate with the level of or the degree of the threat. Exactly. And, and in particular, like a lot of the judgments seem to, you know, whether it's explicitly referenced in the analysis or not, look for that means of escape. Like, was there something in that trajectory that would have allowed you to sort of remove yourself so that we didn't, we didn't get to the situation that we're in and you just decided to, you know, for reasons unknown, proceed on. And so when you ask that question, who bears the responsibility, 
it's difficult to lodge a section 34 defense when when you can when the crown can can show that there was opportunity for you to leave or to disassociate now in a previous episode i think when we did sexual assault you mentioned that you typically prefer trial by judge over jury yeah. is that the same where there's self-defense allegations yeah because really? <laughs> i would have thought that um so i was wondering if you would hope that you would just get someone who thinks something along the lines of i don't know play stupid games win stupid prizes or yeah uh, well the right to defend property or something like that um yeah. and where you would maybe get less likely to get that with a judge yeah you know and i think that really boils down to just sort of um personal preference, but also the demographic of the people I tend to represent. Yeah. And I'm in a rural area. So without being more explicit, um, or the areas I practice in are, are, I would say, you know, unless it's appellate work, 99.9% .9 of the time they are in rural areas. And I am dealing with most of the time, um, either structurally marginalized people or structurally vulnerable people. And, um, Juries don't tend to have a particularly ripe response to them. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of, I, I can't help just because I'm so obsessed with my own area of practice, yes. but I can't help but draw parallels to what would happen if a refugee claim were to be determined by a jury, um, you know, in terms yeah. of like assessing risk, assessing whether or not other options were viable, all of that sort of thing. The idea of putting that out to the court of public opinion seems a little bit daunting, especially... Yes in these unique types of circumstances. Yes. Um, I just, I think that what I find really interesting about this whole topic is how, you know, we like to problematize these legal questions, but problematizing the legal question of how you assess um, not just motive, but motive and also like fear and fear response and a reaction and whether or not that fear response and that reaction is commensurate with the nature of the threat like this, it, it is a sort of a very interesting parallel. So you've always brings us these interesting discussion topics like this, but um, looking at this in the criminal context versus looking at this in the risk context in an immigration or refugee kind of an environment yes. where it's like asking people like, yes, you might be afraid here, but it's fleeing your only choice. That's how we would do it in the refugee setting, you know, like, could you not have stayed and lived underground or gone to another place, you know? same thing of whether or not your yes. fear is big enough and whether or not objectively speaking yes the tribunal determines that your reaction to take in in, in the refugee context to leave or in the criminal context to defend yes. <laughs> was actually considered an appropriate response given all the circumstances of the cases it's like when you break it down from the adjudicatory perspective, it's a yeah. very complex analysis, actually. Oh, it, it is. But and, and this is also one of these like really tricky um, issues when deciding who do you put on the stand for the Section 34? Because mm -hmm. if you're a really articulate witness and you're able to convey in a, in a real sort of visceral way to the judge how you were feeling, you know, and exactly why you responded the way that you that you did. I mean, your chances of success are are so much higher 
higher than, you know, the, the accused person who maybe is cognitively impaired, who doesn't have the ability, and more so in these kinds of cases and other cases to really convey to the judge what they were experiencing in that moment. And if you don't have an accused that can do that, well, it's really difficult to win these Section 34 cases. Super basic question. Is it the same in Canada as the United States, where all you need is one member of the jury to believe that it was self-defense to get a hung jury? Yes, that's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's start maybe with Kiel, because uh, I'm curious as to your thoughts as to whether it will have a different result under the new guidance from uh, the Supreme Court when it goes back. So Mr. Kiel is living at home. He's in his house. Mm-hmm. He's awakened to a noise in his garage or his driveway, looks out the window, sees that someone is in his truck or suspects that someone is in his truck, yep. gets his shotgun, loads two shells, go outside, uh, opens the door to the driveway, notices that there's movement in the truck, advances to the vehicle. Then I'll just quote the Supreme Court. As he rounded the rear of the truck, he noticed someone bent over into the open passenger side door. Having gone unnoticed to this point, Mr. Kiel shouted to the unidentified person, hey, hands up. The person leaning into Mr. Kill's truck was Mr. Jonathan Stiers. Forensic evidence from the scene estimated that the distance between Mr. Kill and Mr. Stiers was between 3 and 12 feet. As Mr. Stiers turned toward the sound of Mr. Kill's voice, Mr. Kill fired, racked the action, and fired a second time, striking Mr. Stiers with two concentrated bursts of shot in the chest and shoulder. He then searches him, discovers that there's no gun, and so on. So... In looking at that, maybe do you want to address what the Supreme Court said the lower court got wrong in the jury instructions and how the jury instructions should have gone? Yeah, I think that I'll just say that the, the general thrust from from my perspective of Martin's um, analysis is to say, look, this is a guy that had the presence of mind to take out a firearm, to load it, to put himself in a precarious situation before he even contemplates calling 911 and doesn't just stand outside of the vehicle, but then injects himself inside of his vehicle. And, and when, so when we step back and ask the question that Justice Martin says we should be asking who ultimately bears responsibility for this, well, it looks like it's Mr. Keel. <laughs> so, like so when we when we examine like you know what was the role of the accused from the beginning so from the time that he hears that noise until ultimately the um, impugned act is committed well that series of steps i just described you know getting the gun loading the gun deciding not to call 911 not not only walking outside but injecting him injecting himself into that truck we've got a big problem if we're supposed yeah. to be analyzing the trajectory of that sequence, you know? And the, the judge at trial had basically limited role of the accused to the period right before he shot. That's right. And, and, it, and without examining, you know, what, what was, what were the reasonableness, what was the reasonableness of the, of your actions leading up to the point where you inject yourself into that vehicle? Yeah. You know, one of the things though that we hear in law school is, uh, is always that, you know, that, that sort of one of those phrases that really stuck with me about like tough cases make bad law or whatever. And I mean, I'm not sure that I would, that I would call this a tough case or, uh, or but 
I guess what I'm getting at here is that these principles seem pretty clear in a situation like this. You know, I think a lot of people might say the same about the Rittenhouse case, but I can imagine how in a different context, this can be far more problematic, like where it's not with that degree of premeditation, but where there might be, for example, the influence of trauma. And then there's a question of oh, whether yeah. or not that response was measured. Was it too big? You know, was that, yeah. was that response, um, you know, uh, to, you know, like, was that person, should that person have walked away from the situation? Like it starts to feel a little bit like, especially when you combine this with some of the discussion we had in the sexual assaults um, yes. podcast, you know, like yes. um, I can imagine this being adapted in quite dangerous ways, if not sort of oh, yeah. minimized. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think we, we discuss this on almost every recording that we have, but like, it's, it's really remembering like who's, who's presiding over these matters most of the time. Well, these really privileged white people <laughs> who don't have to deal with, you know, or haven't had personal experiences that allow them to understand why, you know, very specific, um, uh, you know, instances of, you know, violence or threatening behavior may prompt a reaction that is, you know, uh, is on the part of the individual kind of out of their control. But if you, ju if you judge them against that reasonableness person standard, it seems entirely unreasonable. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it becomes really problematic. Well, also when you take into this like, well, why did that person get themselves into that situation where that violent incident might have occurred? I can imagine when you sort of put in some of that trauma theory stuff and yeah. the thing about like, well, there's Stockholm syndrome, there's all sorts of reasons why sometimes people um, might find themselves in very dangerous situations. But the question yes. of culpability really becomes quite complicated when yes. it might it might take away the ability to claim self-defense when things escalate beyond uh, yes. what that person reasonably anticipated. Yeah, yes. I mean, I'm curious to see what happens when this goes back, because I could see in a jury of 12, someone saying, well, you know, it wouldn't be fair to Mr. Keel that he has to just sit and wait and let his car get rummaged through that time or possibly, you know, multiple times if it happens more than once. And what is he expected to do? Call 911. <laughs> but call 911. So do you think it makes a difference if he calls 911 and then goes out? No, but I think it ultimately um, sheds light on his subjective state of mind. Like, was his intention really to defend his property and ensure that the loose change or stereo system that he had in his car wasn't taken? I mean, if that was the case, could you not take photographs of the individual who's outside of the door, you know, call 911 and stay online with dispatch until they arrive so you can provide a description? Um, no. You, you took it upon yourself to load your gun and walk outside and inject yourself into this person's physical being. <laughs> so Right. But then even, so even if we, even if we say, okay, well, we could have called 911. Yeah. Um, that's still just one factor that gets considered mm -hmm. in the overall chain of a mm -hmm. analysis under section 341. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, I feel like in a, There'll be the people like this was where I'd asked, you know, are there that likelihood they'll get someone who says, well, he shouldn't have gone on the property. Um, oh, you will absolutely get a juror that says that there's no doubt about it. You will absolutely get a juror that says, you know, because they'll put themselves in that position. And it may be somebody who's not as like, who do we know is rummaging around in cars? Right. Like that's that I think Justice Martin's decision. I, I think 
I don't think it would be fair to suggest that she didn't didn't have the following in mind when she pronounced this judgment. But who do we know is rummaging like, through vehicles? Or is it these sophisticated criminals who are, you know, what we would describe as dangerous? No. <laughs> no. Right. And so I, I, I do think, you know, but going back to, to your question, are we going to have a juror who's not familiar with the type of person that's going to be, you know, rummaging around um, in your vehicle late at night for spare change? Absolutely. And is this person going to feel as though, you know, they would have viewed themselves to be under significant threat to the point where they needed to arm themselves with a loaded firearm? Probably. So yeah, juries can be really advantageous. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, that's why I'm curious to see like, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, I don't know if we'll know if it will make the news what the ultimate result yeah. of this uh, trial is. Um, it's kind of similar to the situation in Kyle Rittenhouse, although in that case, uh, well, there's three people that he shot and each one kind of raises its own, I guess, factor in the Section 34-1 analysis. So the first is like, if you go to somewhere where your presence is likely to not be welcomed, uh, which is what he did, or you go there to agitate at a protest, to what extent does that negate a claim of self-defense? Say that again. So you go, you. <clears throat> so like where, and it's, 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 if you go out and provoke, a situation where you're likely to have people get very antagonistic to you. Yeah. Does that negate like in the role leading up to the incident? Um, Cause you're going to see a starting to see like protesters yeah. counter pro, which is basic kind of like what happened in the Rittenhouse case, protester, counter protester. Um, and usually, I mean, in Canada, it wouldn't, I, I don't think would escalate because it's the less of a gun culture. Yeah. But where there would be assaults, I would imagine, that arise in these yeah. circumstances. Yeah, yeah. So so Keel tells us, okay, look, we've got to look at the broader sort of, you know, time frame that considers the full context of the accused actions. We've got to do that in a, in a holistic manner rather than simply like a freeze frame approach. Um, and that freeze frame approach shouldn't be encouraged exclusively by things like provocation and unlawful assault. And so, you know, what would a Canadian court say to a person who, you know, walks into um, a protest where they know that they will be unwelcome? I think it depends on, you know, subsection C of 34 and that, those list of nine factors. I mean, we, we don't we won't ever be um, focusing exclusively on provocation. Really, provocation is going to be one of several factors that we'll that we will consider, and the extent to which we consider it is entirely dependent upon the facts of that case. Um, I, I don't, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so then, I guess it would be the same, like a list of factors with the other two people that he shot. And I'd read an interesting analysis of the people who after Rittenhouse shot the first person who then I think one person pointed a gun at him another started hitting him with a skateboard, but they thought that they were confronting an active shooter, which right. he was, is that like, is there a distinction at all between self-defense and a citizen, like a citizen's arrest concept in Canada or preventing harm to others, like a good Samaritan defense? Yeah, so no, there, there is no, like, when it comes down to the analysis, is there a distinction 
between the two concepts that you just referenced, no, you're ultimately engaging in the same line of analysis articulated in section 34 and the same, you know, nine factors bleed into that, you know, third subset. It's, it's sometimes it can be really difficult to answer the, the, you know, the questions based on, on, um, on hypotheticals because oftentimes, and it's so necessary, but our law tells us everything has to be so fact driven and so contextual, which I appreciate and I applaud, but it makes for hypotheticals. <laughs> really well, yeah, especially where it's just a list of factors. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious though about like going back to the very like, um, kind of analytical perspective that like, the reasonableness of the the concern by the person who is bringing the self-defense you know like um yeah. when they're when you're looking objectively at that like what about a mistaken belief or what about a belief that might be affected by one's mental state or one's um, health condition like how do those factors or not necessarily how do those factors get assessed but in the criminal justice system are those factors um, considered relevant, like let's say somebody had a mistaken belief, but they, you know, uh, but they truly believe. Like, is that the sort of thing? Is it? Does it need to be a correct understanding, or it just needs to be a reasonable? So, if it was reasonable. a mistaken belief, was it reasonable for you to hold that? Yeah. You know, okay. mistaken belief in those circumstances. Okay. Um, you know, I guess I'm trying to think of of. I guess I can to to an extent comment on that case because we we she was convicted we are awaiting sentencing and so I, I suppose it's now a matter of public record um but you know in in this particular case we had a group of people who were um you know partying at a residence everyone was grossly intoxicated and a fight broke out between two women and um the accused went and barricaded herself in a bedroom the complainant um, started banging at the door, threatening her. Eventually the accused left the bedroom and the complainant followed her down the hallway and was yelling at her and pushed her once. And the accused responded by punching her twice while she had a glass in her hand, causing extensive injury to the complainant. And the trial judge ultimately held that while the complainant was absolutely provoking the accused in you know, the minutes leading up to the assault, it was not reasonable for her to respond with a glass in her hand that she could have, for example, you know, pushed um, the complainant away and then left the residence. And the accused in that case even testified that it was just this instinctual reaction that she had. Like she was under the influence of alcohol. She had this glass in her hand and the evidence wasn't entirely clear to what extent she acknowledged the item in her hand. Um, but even still, the judge was of the view that, you know, a reasonable person, even though there was provocation, would not have responded by punching somebody not once but twice with the glass in their hand. And, you know, I thought she was quite persuasive in saying, I, 
I wasn't even thinking it was just, she pushed me and that's how I, how I responded. I, I didn't intend to, to cause the damage that I did. Um, this is just, you know, what, wow. That occurred. Yeah. Well, that's very illustrative in fact, because it sort of goes to show how, um, you know, that the expectation of like reflection and oh, yeah. considering the degree of the response is expected all the way throughout, even when responding in fear and in, with a sense of danger that was to some extent considered to be appropriate, you know, yeah. that yeah. still. And it's uh, interesting because I thought in Kiel they specifically addressed this notion that the response has to be proportionate to the provocation or self-defense and say that's not determinative yes and they also harp on the fact that you know it, it we're we're in this advantageous position and every judge is and, and they as they say they acknowledge that by saying that we can reflect on what was was not reasonable where the, the individual can't to that in that moment um but you know, that line of thinking isn't entirely divorced from the Section 34 analysis that factors in at some point. Um, and that's why I say, how convincing is that accused? I mean, how how articulate are they and how how do do they have the capacity to describe to the trial judge like their their exa exact frame of mind? I mean, you can't very rarely can you get away with Section 34 defense without putting the accused on the stand. And, you know, if she was able to articulate herself better and explain, you know, the, the history of the relationship between the two of them better uh, and her frame of mind better, <laughs> would the result have been the same? I don't know. Is the standard beyond a reasonable doubt that it wasn't self-defense? Yes. I have to raise an error of reality for the defense of self-defense. And once I've raised that error of reality and it's before the court, then the crown has to disprove it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And at least in the case you were describing, like beyond a reasonable doubt, that second glass, like the second hit. Yeah. And, the, and, you know, I can, I mean, this is kind of getting, we're going astray here, but the, Initially, the the complainant only testified to being struck once, and it was actually the accused that offered, well, I could have actually struck her once, maybe even twice. And I think it was at that point, um, the, the court had some difficulty grappling with the fact that there that this may have been like a proportionate measured and reasoned response to the push that she received. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I do want to touch on, because uh, I know people have asked, oh, sorry, go ahead, Deanna. Well, I'm just saying like these types of, um, these types of hearings are so fraught when you're asked to reflect upon something oh, yeah. that happens in that kind of, I mean, we all know that when anything with that kind of tension occurs, the way that the the mind records that event and the way that the whole body is responding with all the adrenaline and all yeah. of yeah. the energy, well, you know, and then the, the adjudicative process sits quite aside from that. And it's yeah. like, well, <laughs> weighing these factors objectively. Um, and I would think the average judge is less likely to have ever been in a fight than the average person. Totally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
And that's oh. again, so problematic about all of these cases is that you're like, you're yeah. pitting this accused that, that, you know, given the demographics of the accused in Canada against this, against the judge and their experiences are so distinct. And, you know, to, to be able for, you know, to be able to put your, your, yourself in their shoes is just so difficult. And it's compounded by the fact that if they, if they can't put you in their shoes, right, like they just don't have the capacity to, you know, e explain the nature of their actions and their reactions. It's really, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. I can't get out of my mind a parallel that I keep thinking of to the refugee context again, where, um, you know, when you're trying to, to raise um, a claim um, in the refugee process where you're describing a risk that you perceive exists in your country of citizenship. Sometimes when it's um, somebody who like, um, on, like under the SOGI guidelines, when you're making a claim based on sexual orientation or gender identity, yeah. it can be that you didn't actually live out in that identity within the country where you were living. Yeah. And so it's just what I'm thinking about this like evidentiary problem of explaining whether or not your fear and your decision to leave that country without coming out yeah. was reasonable under the circumstances. You yeah. Know? And yeah. so it does yeah. feel like the same kind of conundrum. Oh, yeah. But like, yes, the SOGI guidelines say like if you did not feel comfortable coming out because of what you know about the country, you need to show a reasonably objective basis for claiming that this is the case. But you know, like the, it's sort of like that modified subjective test in the same kind of way. Like yeah. the fact that you actually felt you couldn't come out in that country, was that reasonable in the context of what we know about the country? And totally. again, it's just so hard to imagine how an adjudicator in that yeah. position is supposed to preside upon yeah. um, a subject such as that without knowing what it actually feels like to live in that identity in yeah. that country yeah. and motivated. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to touch on, and I know Sarah, you have a, a hearing in five minutes. Uh, mm -hmm. Just uh, people have asked, why do we talk about criminal law on an immigration podcast? So I pulled up a case, Kotai v. Canada, Citizenship and Immigration, 2015, FC 511. That's the citation for the case. And in that case, the federal court set aside an immigration refugee board decision which found that someone was inadmissible to Canada for having been convicted of a crime in Poland. And in the decision, counsel brought up uh, the issue of self-defense and the member said, quote, I find that Mr. Kotai may have used more force than was necessary or required and the extent of the aggression to defend himself, end quote. So in other words, there was, you know, more force than was necessary was determinative to the IRB member and the federal court set it aside, saying that as a result of the 2013 amendments that Sarah mentioned, that that's not a determinative factor and that the member had to actually consider all of these factors. So again, there is, uh, we don't just talk about criminal law because it's interesting and, and new, at least to me, but um, there is, there are very important tie-ins for uh, people who are criminally inadmissible and those who represent them. I think it's also that some of the, some of the problems that adjudicators in the criminal setting and in the um, immigration setting are face and have to grapple with, and some of the evidentiary standards that we need to meet in hearings before these tribunals and courts yeah. are similar. Like I can't think of any other 
you know, like a family law case or something like that, where you're grappling with these same issues of assessing credibility and assessing intent and motive and all this sort of thing, there are some parallels that um, I feel like in some ways, because the criminal law is kind of like older and more established and um, I don't know, there's just more jurisprudence there that I think some of the principles feel really salient when you're doing conversations about immigration law. Yeah, you know, and this is this is also, I mean, this is totally off top, well, not entirely off topic, but somewhat. And that, that's why I feel like it's so important when we, you know, are considering who we're appointing to provincial and Supreme Court benches and these tribunals that you have people with real life experience who are going to be able to relate to a diversity of experiences, you know, like I, you know, just receiving some calls lately from I'm sure we've all received them from judicial counsel calling and saying, what about this candidate? And they could be super intelligent and such a nice, you know, guy or, or girl, but what, like, what has, what's been their real world experience? Like, can they relate to the majority of the people that they are going to hear from on, on the stand? Um, and if you can't do that, I mean, for all of the reasons that we discussed during the course of this, this podcast, you know, applying that analytical framework becomes really, um, becomes really taxing and it's not a map like it doesn't actually give you the right answer you still no. need to really engage with the facts in a very holistic way and yeah. we keep coming back to these kinds of things that we talked about around credibility determinations and yeah. all of what are those exactly yeah those get made if not based on societal values and lived experience yeah yeah you know yeah i'm with you yeah Awesome. Well, we uh, you have two minutes to get on to. Uh, I, I your just thought I've got five. I, I've got five. Okay. <laughs> another one. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Amazing. No, I think uh, this has been interesting and timely. It's funny, like an American story once again dominated um, Canadian news, but it uh, between Kiel and Rittenhouse, it's a very timely topic and one that I think is uh, is interesting. I I. Don't know that, again how likely it is that we'll hear what a new jury does with Mr. Keel and balancing all of these factors. Um, yeah, I'm. I have no idea. I'm not sure how they'll uh, go. Yeah, but I think that there is kind of a theme in what we talk about in terms of like just the nature of qualitative assessments in any legal proceeding and. You know, what are, I mean, this is something we even talked about around artificial intelligence. What happens to discretion when we start um, leveraging artificial intelligence? Like it's all these things about like the growing complexity of our legal system and how these very complex rules are to be administered in a humane way that's like commensurate with our societal values, whatever all that means. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 